0: Hi, it's Tony Chapman. I just want to give you a heads up that there's times when this conversation gets dark, not always easy to listen to, but I can promise you that what comes from it is just a human being dedicating her life to helping others. We celebrate, we cherish the promises that are made and kept, but equally we're often disappointed, even shattered when the opposite happens, when our hope is raised, but our expectations are not realized. We think about the child looking for their parent in the audience who didn't make it on time. A promotion that was teased but didn't materialize, even though you felt all the deliverables were met. A renovation to your home that fails in its quality, or its budget or its timetable. A politician once elected who you realize is more rhetoric than reality. There's thousands of examples. And most of the time we recover, but almost all the time it has some form of impact. We might lose trust or respect for an individual organization. or We might even lose faith in ourselves. What if the promise made was one that lifted you, that made you feel like you were floating on air, that you just that you had found a new path in life, searching for something that you just felt was a, a chance to start all over. But when you arrived, that promise turned out to be a lie. Instead of a dream of a better life, you're thrown into a living nightmare with no way to wake up from. This is the story I'm gonna share with you today. It's one of survival, it's one of hope, but then it's one of incredible happiness. Our hero is an ordinary woman. As you listen to her story, walk in her footsteps, feel her pain, and then celebrate how she overcomes horrific circumstances to change her life and to change our world for the better.
1: A year after my court, there was an article in a newspaper with the headlines, human trafficking victims rescued. And I said, that sounds terrible. What is that? And I read their stories and I'm like, I was a, it wasn't my fault. And I fell on the ground, I cried. And uh, reached out to the agency, the police, and said, I would like to help those girls because I know they can't talk to you and I know why.
0: My guest today is Tamiya Nagy.
2: You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: Tamiya is the daughter of a Hungarian policewoman and was 20 years old when she answered a newspaper ad in Budapest, Hungary, calling for young women to work as babysitters and housekeepers in Canada. No English required. Tamiya thought she was hired by a legitimate recruitment agency. She left her home dreaming of that better life and the opportunity to earn good money to send back to her family. What she didn't know was that she'd been lured by a ring of international human traffickers and her life would never again be the same. Tamiya Nagy, thank you for joining me on Chatter That Matters.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Tamil, you grew up in Budapest during the tail end of communism. I saw a picture in my research of you sitting with your brother. You both look happy. But in this case, not every picture tells a thousand words. Life wasn't always happy, was it, for you back then?
1: No, it wasn't always happy. When it was really, really good, it was really good. When it was really bad, it was really bad. So it was... It was actually just more unstable and uncertain than anything.
0: What I understand is your mom had an undiagnosed mental issue. Both your parents drank a lot. Is that what you're talking about when things are really bad? It was, you know, that place of financial burden was it domestic violence or abuse or is it just, that's how my parents were.
1: So it was my dad who was drinking. My mom had the mental health issues and you never knew what you came home to right and yeah there was a lot of domestic violence my brother didn't handle it well either so my mom took it out on me my brother took it out on me and uh, my dad even though he was the drinker he was a quiet one so he was actually the only one who would kind of protect me uh, but he left too when i was very young so
0: not only that but from what i understand you suffered from poor health And I don't know if this was sensationalism, but in one article I read, it said that you were on your deathbed more than once.
1: It's actually true. When I I was born with the chronic bronchitis, and because we were very poor, we were living in very poor conditions, very, very old buildings that were built in the thirteen, fourteen hundreds. 1400s. So there's mold all around us. So I had no chance to heal um, until I was three years old. So until I was three years old, I was literally in and out of hospitals. I have more needle pokes on my hand that you can count I still see them but finally I went to a sanatorium but even then after that I had all kinds of sicknesses but kind of sicknesses the doctors didn't even know what it was they had to bring the textbooks out and yeah during bronchitis I died according to my mom about eight times for sure I was like dead and they had to bring me back
0: not only were you dealing with your mom's mental illness, your dad's drinking, domestic abuse from both your mother and your brother, you're also sexually abused, age 12, age 13, age 15. We don't need all the details, but how did that come about and why wasn't there anyone there to ever protect you?
1: Yeah, I was sexually assaulted, but uh, three times. The first time I was about 11 or 12 by our neighbors during a big um, neighbor get together. We had a movie night and I happened to sit in between my favorite couples. There was a husband and a wife and I was sitting in between them. And next thing you know, there were hands where they weren't supposed to. And it actually really traumatized me. And then the second one was my mom's colleague, a police officer. I was about 13 years old. I was telling him that I really like this boy and I really want to kiss him. And he wanted to show me how to kiss first. Uh, and that turned into a very bad situation. I ended up running out of uh, my mom's um police station. And then the third one was I was 15 years old. I was working at a TV station already. And uh, he was actually the station manager and the director. And I was there late night working. And uh he pushed me up against the wall. And he was breathing really heavily. And he kind of pinned me on the wall and he started doing things that again I wasn't prepared for but what happened is that the very very first time when it happened something really changed in me I changed I felt dirty I felt even more unworthy I just felt like I'm just a piece of meat in a way but something really split in my brain. I just felt like a nobody, absolutely no worth whatsoever. So I think later on, I learned in life why this has repeated itself and why I became a victim all the time. But why nobody was there, you know what, Tony? I don't know why nobody is there when people are dying on the other side of the world, why people are not there when a young black kid is getting shot why people are not there when the indigenous kids were killed i don't know i think that's a question we're going to get an answer to when we die i think
0: tamir you're starting to have success back in hungary in a career as you mentioned the tv station but you're drawn to an ad that says young women in canada english not necessary we will make $1,000 a month. I guess it was for babysitting and housekeeping services. Why were you drawn to that ad? Because you were starting to finally have this kind of career and a bit of a life in Hungary. What was the motivation to say, you know what, even with that little bit of success, I'm willing to go across the world to a country where I don't speak their language to chase something that, it, was it just money or?
1: Two things were happening at the same time. I was you know, at 15, I started a TV production company, actually 16. And yeah, you're right. It was very successful, but that was really just covered to cover it up. What was going on underneath above the surface? I was an overachiever because I wanted to do everything in my power, not to be home and not to deal with all the issues that I have. You see, as a child, I've been through so much childhood trauma, but I've never learned what they were. I have never had... I never had therapy. I never had conversations. So yes, I may got older and life may got a little kinder to me, but the trauma was still there and the ripple effects of uh, feeling unworthy and feeling uh, like I'm always on a run. And I have a tunnel vision, which means I was never taught how to deal with money properly, how not to be in crisis. I was always in crisis more than I teach this a lot in our workshops, where just because I'm I'm 20 years old now, it doesn't mean that that my mind and my emotional intelligence was maturing or growing or had any any shadow of healthy thoughts in me so by the time I was 21 years old yes I had a company but I tanked it financially completely and my brother and I we were about to lose the apartment we lived in and my mom was in and out of the hospitals so maybe I was achieving professionally but emotionally I was crumbling and everything was coming to a head so when I answered that uh, two things went through my mind One is, yes, there's a way out of here. And going to Canada was just a perfect opportunity to get out of there. I was desperate to find a place in the world where I wasn't always in crisis mode, or where I wasn't always just a nobody or somebody's punching bag.
2: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman presented by rbc when you
1: don't speak english you're in a country that you don't know and the only voice in your head is these people telling you in your language what gonna happen if you leave what gonna happen if you talk to others it takes you a long time to figure it out what's lie, what's real all the threats because of canadian people is why i'm still here and why i'm alive
0: my guest today is tamia nagy if you thought her childhood was tough wait to hear what happens next And so let's now take, you arrive in Canada. It must have been, you know, was that the first plane ride you were ever on or the first overseas plane ride?
1: Yes, it was. (laughs)
0: Millions of things are going through your mind. You get off the plane and what happens? Who meets you and how does this whole world even become worse for you
1: yeah so the first thing is first of all when I'm on a flight I'm like looking out the window and I'm dreaming big I mean big Tony like life is gonna get better and you know I'm gonna find my place and I'm gonna have a beautiful home and everything is gonna be amazing not in Canada but I come to Canada I see the world we'll make the money we need we'll go home and everything is just gonna be Amazing after this, and as I'm dreaming big, this lady next to me starts talking to me, who's Hungarian, and says, "You know, where are you going? What are you gonna do there?" Blah blah blah. And I look at her. I'm like, "Lady, what's with all these questions? And what's up with the negativity?" She's like, "Oh, this doesn't sound very good. Be careful. There's a lot of bad." I'm like, "I don't need this kind of a negativity." I'm like on the top of the world, cloud nine. She's like, "Here's my number. Just take it, just in case you need." Needed. and in case you get in trouble I'm like okay sure I'll take it Just I was just trying to be nice I took her number and then when we landed it was a whole different world culture shock to start with you know you um, people from different backgrounds different culture and countries and different clothes they wear turbans and so it just all of the sudden I felt like Alice in Wonderland I didn't speak English I spoke a little Russian that didn't really help me here so so our first experience is going to the washroom, as embarrassing as it is, I will tell you anyways. I couldn't even wash my hands or, you know, do my thing in a washroom because I didn't even know how to flush the toilet. Uh-oh, this is going to be hard. How am I going to take care of kids if I don't even know how to flush the toilet? So right there in the bathroom, I was so scared for the first minute. And then things just went downhill from there. You know, I'm meeting immigration who's telling me my contract isn't right. And the people who's going to meet me outside don't have the same name as my agent told me in Hungary. And then finally, they told me that my contract is in English, but it says I will be a stripper, not a babysitter. I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> so, yeah, it was a big shock. But... This is what people don't really want to hear, at the, as scared as I was because of how bad my life was in Hungary and how suffocated I felt, even though I got into that vehicle knowing that something really bad is going to happen to me when I got into my trafficker's car at the airport. At the very same time, Tony, I was breathing air like I never breathed before, I Soon as I landed in Canada and got out of the airport, yes, I was terrified, no doubt. But at the same time, deep inside, I was so excited. I felt like for the first time, I actually came alive. I was so far from everything that held me back and hold me down and put me down that I thought that no matter what's going to happen to me, I'm going to have to fight.
0: Did you know, though, that you were heading into, as a contract said in English, to become a stripper versus a babysitter, or did you just you're still confused with everything that was going on?
1: I was still really, really confused. We got to the motel, and again, like I said, the first two to three hours was like Alice in Wonderland. It's like, wow, it's a motel, it's like a coffee machine, like in Twin Peaks in the movie. And it's like the apple pies you see in the movies. And it's like, this can't be bad. How could possibly this be bad? So I was like in this bliss until they had a conversation with me and told me what happened that, you know, my contract got mixed up and that I need to make up the money. And now we're going to go to this club where I'm going to have to make up the money. So I actually think my survival mode was is to just focus on how amazing the surroundings are instead of focusing on all the bad things that are about to happen to me.
0: And so you head over to this club. You just arrived. They didn't even let you have a sleep. I mean, it's just, was it that quick? Oh, yeah. Part of it is just probably to have you so disoriented you don't even know how to think.
1: Oh, absolutely. There was no sleep at all. And even during the whole time, they won't let you sleep. They won't let you leave the club. They won't let you talk to anybody. It's work, 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 work. Because now you're here to work. You owe them a lot of money. You need to pay them back. You need to, you want to take some money home. At the very beginning, you still believe that no matter what you have to do and how embarrassing, and this is not what you wanted to do, but it is what it is. There's no way of turning back. You still believe at the beginning and for a while that once you pay them off, then they will let you keep your money and you still have that dream of going home. It's a vicious, vicious, vicious game, but they won't let you eat. So you lose weight and you don't sleep. So you can't think eventually the threats are coming that they're going to kill your family. They're going to tell everybody in Hungary that you are just a hooker and you're a prostitute and you're a drug addict and that your life is kind of done like you have nowhere to go to you have nothing to go home to if you don't do what they tell you to do
0: a lot of people in this circumstance as a man, manner of coping become drug addicts you know the abuser's greatest weapon is the victim becomes more passive they lose self-esteem they feel they deserve this Did you keep up your fight during this? Did you realize that, yes, this is I'm in survival mode, but I I have to find a way out? Or did you just kind of fall into the one day leading into another?
1: I've never done drugs in my life because I grew up in a communism and at the time that was a no go. If I had grown up with a mother with a needle in her arm, there's a good chance that I would have put the needle in my own arm as well as a coping mechanism. But that wasn't my coping mechanism. From a very, very young age, my coping mechanism was to daydream, to go somewhere else in my mind. I always found I just needed an hour in the day to go somewhere else. And as long as they let me do that, I can survive. So there was times when we would be driving in a car and it would be like an hour and a half drive. And I would just close my eyes and pretend that I'm sleeping. But I wasn't sleeping. I went to beautiful places. I went to my hopes and dreams. I went to an alternative life that I could have here. Sometimes I would look at houses and. Pretend that I'm living there, and my job. My, I am getting in my car now, like a regular Canadian person, and I'm going to my job. I was dreaming about being on a subway. Can you imagine? That was my dream.
0: Another thing I read, and you know, we we've all heard about the Stockholm syndrome, where the victim begins to identify with their captor or abuser. You talk about your Canadian handler as both a nice guy and a pig at the same time, in the sense that he brought you food, but at the same time, he would sexually abuse you. Did you feel that, that affinity? Did you feel at least there was somebody within that world, even though they were doing horrific things to you, that there was a bit of a silver lining?
1: I actually did. It could have been so much worse. As I learned later when I was working with victims, that for some people, it was way worse. Another thing that made me survive everything is that every time somebody came at me with the intention of hurting me one way or another verbally or needing to have sexually encountered either forcefully or unforcefully, I would just look them in the eye and I was just looking for a soul inside. And as long as I could see the soul, I trusted that it's not going to get too bad There's only one time, which actually two times where it was really, really bad interaction with clients and there was no soul inside, which is when I closed my eyes and I went to a whole other place while the assault lasted.
0: After two months, you found a way out. Can you share with us
1: how that came about? So I was already there for two months and one morning, um, I was in a club every single day and one morning... I we hear this lady crying unconsolably just walking through the club she's wearing black and i hear hungarian turns out one of the girls who used to work at the club disappeared turns out that girl was hungarian and turns out that she died our traffickers told us that she used to be one of us she went against us and that she's gonna pay for it that's just what the story they told us turns out she she either committed suicide or pushed front, front of the subway, and I, the way I saw that lady crying, I, no matter how I felt about my mother, I would have never ever ever wanted her to feel that pain. So I actually decided that to avoid mom ever feeling like she lost me in a tragic way, I needed to I needed to find a way out, and my plan was this. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go to Hungary before they come back because they also had to leave every three months and come back to change their work permit. So I'm going to go home first. I'm going to go to the police. I'm going to give them up. If they go to jail, then I'm good. Everybody is free. I'm free. And then because of the shame and the guilt and everything, no one's going to want me in Hungary. So I was going to just go to England or Germany to start a new life. That was my plan. And so with luck, one of the bodyguard was actually speaking Hungarian. He was Canadian but spoke Hungarian because of his family. And we were talking to the club uh, owner and management and bodyguards and say, you know, please help fake passport, help me escape, so on and so forth. And we made a plan and with the help of a DJ who I'm still looking for, I can't find him. His name is Chris. He used to work at Fantasia. He's the one who helped me escape and he's the one who let me sleep at his place. But that's how I escaped.
0: When we return, Tamiya Nagy must answer the question, now what? Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. A big shout out to RBC who have long believed that diversity is not only the right thing to do, but also the smart thing to do. Their purpose of helping clients thrive and communities prosper is core to who they are as an organization. And it's something that can only be achieved when everyone has the opportunity to achieve their fullest potential and speak up for inclusion. Diversity matters to RBC.
2: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. How
0: did you feel knowing that there were people that finally believed in you and were there to help you?
2: I felt grateful,
1: I felt inspired, I felt seen, I felt heard, and I felt like I actually matter. That's when I kind of had this mission that even though I have to leave, somehow I need to come back and give back. I just felt very, very grateful, very grateful.
0: My guest today is a hero for all she's doing to eradicate sex trafficking, working with both victims and law enforcement agencies, Tamiya Nagy. So when did you come back to Canada after the escape? How long was it before you came back to the country?
1: Yeah, so I went back to Hungary. I went to the police. It really didn't go the way I thought it would. The police didn't believe me at the time, the airport police. And they also put me in a different building. And the day I arrived, they didn't interrogate me. They actually raped me. Oh man. It did not go well at all. And then after that, I had to go home and the mafia started to come after me. And then the police came after me because after all, they sent my report to the federal police. Turns out this crown or group was wanted by Interpol for trafficking, gun trafficking all kinds of horrible things that they've done and so now they actually believe me and now they wanted my testimony but now it was kind of too late because now the mafia was really after me so the police told me that if I don't testify they're going to put me in jail because I came home with the fake passport and the mafia told me that if I testify they're going to kill my family and there was no winning whatsoever so I actually I was at the lowest point I was really really scared and by the grace of God or whatever the listeners call that source energy that's looking after us in times of need. I was able to actually, I had to escape from Hungary and I left everything behind. And the only country that I knew that I already had some experience in how to be was Canada. And I had one friend here, one of the dancer girl, and she helped me to come back. So when I finally arrived in Canada, I prayed the whole time coming back, A, for immigration to let me in, not to turn me around because I'm done. I I will die. They will kill me or I'll kill myself. My life will end. And the other thing I said, if you let me in Canada, I will be so grateful for the chance you're going to give me to have another life here that I will give back. I will be the best volunteer. I clean the streets. I help the ladies. I'll volunteer. I give back as long as I can. So I came in and immigration actually let me in on a visitor's visa. And eventually I worked my way through the immigration system and I I got a protected uh, landed status. But what's interesting is that 10 years later when I started my organization and I really started volunteering and fulfilling my promise. I got a volunteers, uh, prime minister volunteers award by Stephen Harper. So when Stephen Harper called me up and said to me and Aggie and I went and accepted the volunteer award by the prime minister, he asked me what, what's going through your mind? And I just said to him, you have no idea. But inside I said, thank you so much, God. Is this mean we are even, Stephen? Or you know, it was incredible. It was just incredible.
0: You know, you took that ten years that you talked about, where you start, you formed your organization for a while. You were reluctant to tell your story, and then. You didn't just tell it. You shared it through a Salvation Army campaign called The Truth Isn't Sexy.
1: The truth is I've never done anything intentionally. So when I first shared my story, it was actually behind closed doors because I saw news on the television about victims found in North York by Toronto police. And these were Russian victims who were held in apartments. So when I saw the news, I actually called my police officer who rescued me from Toronto police. And I said, how can I help? These victims not going to talk as you know. So the officer said, you can't, you can't help this investigation, but why don't you share your story with the investigators or maybe with them how to talk to these victims? That didn't really happen, but then another case happened, and it was York Regional Police at the time, and we knew the chief there, and the chief said, go ahead and meet the investigators behind the scenes. So I met the two investigators of that case that I saw on the news. Same thing, victim, doesn't want to talk. I had no idea that I'm going to become a public speaker. I had no idea that I'm going to be a poster child. I definitely didn't know I'm going to become a face of human trafficking in Canada. None of that was my intention. My intention was to work with police behind the scenes. But as my story got around in police stations, RCMP called me. He fa- RCMP found out. And RCMP was the one who invited me uh, on, a, on a tour in Canada to to train law enforcement which is how Salvation Army found me.
0: How did the organization begin and did you ever imagine that it would have the impact it's had on so many lives and in terms of policy with the government and in terms of how law enforcement really have come to terms with just how serious this problem is?
1: I was already assisting law enforcement behind the scenes with my little car and from donations that I would get every Sunday when I would go to churches and talk about this. Uh, During the week, I had a job. I was working at a shelter as a relief worker. And so I already started learning about what victim services is. I went to Toronto Police Victim Services training. I took eight-week training. I took a lot of volunteer training to understand how to actually assist victims properly without harming them any further and then i added my own kind of knowledge what would i needed at the time as a victim and i really found so much passion about like helping the survival at the worst time of their life because i really wish that somebody would have been there for me so that was basically the 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 thought process, and that's where I was at emotionally at the time. So I was already working on really large cases. One of them was the largest human trafficking case with RCMP called Project o Papa, where there was 24 victims and 19 accused, one of the largest organizations uh, that was taken down by RCMP at the time. So I'm already zigzagging in Ontario with victims left, right, and center. These um, organized crime are coming after me as well as the victims and I'm all alone like nobody really knows what human trafficking is I have a few friends at the law enforcement are simply trying their best behind these victims and I go to church uh, at the nunnery, and I give a speaking engagement and I say I have 10 victims 10 I am just one person with one car. I barely, I can't even pay my own rent now. At this point, I'm sleeping in my car in between visiting shelters, visiting these victims. And I stopped going to work. Who knows? You have to go to work so you don't get fired. So I get fired. It was crazy. So then I'm doing this speaking engagement at the nonary, I was actually looking for people who would take the victims in and I wanted to train them to be a safe house owner. This couple comes up, especially the husband, his name is Robert Hooper. He's a lawyer from Hamilton. And he's like, well, first of all, you should never speak for free. I'm like, okay, well, give me $5 then. And he was just totally taken back. So he gives me $5. I'm like, well, that was easy. Is there more where that came from? And he's like, come to my office some Monday and we'll talk. I'm like, in my head, I'm like, don't tell me what to do, right? I don't know you. I'm not coming to your office. I don't know who you are, but we we're just joking. I already felt this very, like lots of fun kind of father figure energy. So I showed up at his office and he put that an envelope and he said, in your presentation, you said you in $3,000, dad. I said, yeah. He goes, there's the $3,000, pay off your phone so the victims can call you. And I said, what? He's like, yeah. And another thing is... I would love to help you to put an organization together because what you're doing is charity work and you should get support for that. And I looked at him. I had no idea what he was talking about, but he said he knows how to put organizations together and he wants to help me. So from that moment on, he became the chair of Walk With Me. I named the organization. He got a board of directors. We got an office and we became official in two months. And within one year, there is two $230,000 donations and within one year we went serving two police agencies to 40. Within one year we went to serve 10 victims to 102 and it just grew so fast unfortunately there were so many victims and we were the first one in ontario and canada to do this kind of work that we ran out of money so fast and at the time governments nobody really supported that but we've done so much work and i have zero regrets even though we had to close i still think What we did was important at the time.
0: So since then, I mean, you wrote a book out of the shadows. You're still getting involved with policy and such. What are you doing today to continue to honor that promise you made the second time when you came to Canada and said, if they let me in, I am going to be a citizen I mean, you never dreamed as big as you became, but I'm going to be a citizen. You said sweeping streets, in this case, helping so many others.
1: Well, believe it or not, I'm learning how to be an entrepreneur now and to find my own ways to find revenues different revenue streams from education, teaching, various different entrepreneur um, ships. I'm watching a lot of Dragon's Den. Believe it or not, I started my business based on Dragon's Den. Watching Dragon's Den, Audin Dickinson is my huge idol. One day I'm going to meet her too. That's how I started my business. And right now I have a social enterprise which I started seven years ago. And my goal and hope and dream is that through this social enterprise, we're going to be able to offer even more employment opportunities for survivors and victims through the opportunities of employment and education, financial education, and all the things that I didn't have before I came, but I got from mentors and Dragon's Den and all that. Um, we could create survivors instead of victims who stay in a welfare system.
0: The sad part about humanity is how cynical people have become. What do you say to your critics who would say, well, now it's all about you versus a foundation or you've dramatized your life to set up yourself for success? What do you say to people like that?
1: That's interesting. I spent the first 14, 13 years of my career worrying about what people are going to think literally the last year I started not caring anything about what anybody thinks because I'm not here to explain myself to anybody especially to the very society that is so broken that's allowing these things to happen so if the society have questions about you know my integrity or why I'm doing this or what is this really all about that's just sad that's and I don't have time to talk about it if we want to talk about hope and and positivity and how can we make the world better place together, I'm all for it.
2: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
1: I have really good days and I have really bad days, but I always just look forward to the good days and I'm just super lucky to be here in Canada and have the, my new Canadian family who's taking care of me through those bad days.
0: Today I'm speaking to Tamia Nagy. Her dreams shattered when she arrived in Canada she's rebuilt her life and is now investing her time helping others who are either victims of self-trafficking or just domestic abuse. What are you doing to heal? Because as you said early in your, your career, you didn't have therapy, you didn't have mentors, so you just compartmentalized and buried a lot of trauma. So what, what have you done to make yourself better?
1: I found uh, books and, and content that really helped me that really resonated me there is an individual called um cryon and lee lee carroll um, Esther Hicks, Neil Donald Walsh, you can call it the new age kind of mentors, right? The power of now, all that stuff. But what was really interesting is when I started reading these materials, they all talked about one thing, laws of attraction. And laws of attraction explain to you that at some point, once you're aware of who you are, and your thought process about yourself you create your own future based on how you feel and how you think but the very first thing i learned is that i grew up in victimhood I grew up in victim mentality. My parents were grew up in generational trauma and passed it down. I grew up in a country that's that's anthem is about poor us, poor us, poor us, right? So I grew up in that mindset. And as such, I became a product of that. I actually thought I'm a victim. Every single thing. I'm a victim because this guy pushed me on the street. I'm a victim because I just got robbed. I'm always a victim. Always bad things happen to me. And so... When I understood for the first time that I actually have control over my life, I just have to really control my thoughts and feelings. That's when my life changed. And the very first thing I have to do is to take responsibility, not for what happened to me, but for how I think about life. Take responsibility for my mindset. And when I did that, everything changed and is changing ever since.
0: I want to ask you one more question. If it's too personal, you don't have to answer, but can you, I know you're married, but how can you truly love and trust someone given how many times humanity has abused that trust with you?
1: I was always misused as a child, but deep inside, there was always this voice, this feeling that I'm not alone and I just need to get through it. I learned it at the very, very early age. And the truth is I always had here and there people coming and going in and out of my life who showed me some kind of a love. So it wasn't all bad and there was love and I always hoped and dreamed that one day I will find the love that I'm looking for. I can find, and anybody can really find love. I am living the dream when it comes to a relationship. I live in the most harmonic uh, marriage. He is beautiful. He loves me. I am healthy. We have a great life in every possible way you can think of. But that's because 10, 11, 12 years ago, I decided to love myself. I needed to love myself and accept myself and this is how I was able to let this person in. I don't believe that the circumstances defined you. I don't believe that your past defined you. I believe that your mindset and your thinking process has everything to do with how you can find love and trust. And so if you choose not to trust, you'll never find what you're looking for.
0: So my final question, standing where you are today, with everything that's happened to you, good and evil, do you feel it all happened for a reason, that you had to go through this pain and suffering and tragedy so that you could be a force of positive change to help others?
1: I always thought that I am going to be a voice for change. I always felt the need to stand up for others. I think it would have happened one way or another. I think, unfortunately, it was meant to be for me to walk through this, otherwise people wouldn't listen to me today. As painful and as horrible as it was, if I had to go back and make a choice, to do it all over again, knowing where I'll be later and how many people I would be able to work with, I would do exactly the same thing. I would get on that freaking plane, just close my eyes for the next 14 years and say, it's going to be okay.
0: To me and Nagy, it's been so beautiful to have you on the show. And I always end with my three takeaways. And the first one is, is much cement that was poured on you through much of the early part of your life, including a mother that always said, you won't make Anything of yourself and that negativity and the abuse and such, you always found an angel that let you daydream and let you find that silver lining in a cloud that let you close your eyes and escape and imagine a better place. And I think that is just a wonderful lesson in life for all of us is the ability to have the power to think more positive thoughts. The second thing I want to, that really struck me is the law of attraction. And it's worked for you, good and bad, but I think the good that came about you looking in people's eyes for their souls and knowing that if you could find their soul, no matter how bad it might be for a moment, it wouldn't be forever, I think is another powerful lesson in life for us to realize that there's so much good out there, but sometimes we have to look really hard for it. And the third thing is I just love your honesty. I mean, you are unapologetic talking about who you are, talking about what you've done, talking about some of the lessons you learned on along the way. That honesty and that transparency combined with everything else that we've learned about you today is why you truly have been given this calling and why you've done so much good to hopefully get us to a point in the world where there's few Tamiya Naggies that are you know, swept up in a dream and thrown into a living nightmare. So for all of that and more, I am so touched that you join me in Chatter the Matters. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me and thank you for that incredible um, closing thoughts. I appreciate it.
0: Joining me now is Caroline Tutakovich. One of Canada's 100 most powerful women, board director, keynote speaker, and her full-time job is Senior Director of Fraud and Security Risk Oversight. Caroline, welcome to a chat That Matters. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Now, I would love to talk about your full-time job, Fraud and Security Risk, but I actually, as I was reading your resume, saw how involved you are in the non-for-profit sector. You're at Sherburne Health. You've done a lot with Pride. And you have a personal connection to my guest, Tamia Nagy. How do you find so much time to do all of this and still become one of Canada's 100 most powerful women?
3: It's a very fair question, but to be perfectly frank with you, I'm, uh, I'm not the greatest at time management, but truly none of these things happen in isolation from, from one another. So I've supported the Associated Youth Services for 12 years. I'm on my second term with Sherborne Health my fifth year with Pride, and my third year with the Survivor Inclusion Initiative. And so I have to stay relatively organized in order to manage it all. And in some cases, that means I'm working with a team to execute on some of the strategies. But it comes down to a lot of prioritization. And sometimes it means saying no, there's a ton of organizations and causes I would love to support. But we've all got the same amount of time in the day. And so not everything can get the time. And I've just chosen to focus uh, quite a lot on causes that are close to my heart and that align with my values.
0: Obviously, to me, is an exception. I mean, she, this is a tragedy that becomes transformation. She finds her calling, but there's a lot of people that are in situations where they've been with either violence or abuse or a combination of the two, and it's almost impossible to find their path back to some form of normalcy. But you're trying to do that. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing and why it's so important that the rest of us understand that with the right support, society can do an awful lot to help these people.
3: So the Survivor Inclusion Initiative at RBC, which is where I work, it was co-founded by myself and a colleague and a friend of mine. And what this initiative focuses on is providing equitable access to financial services for survivors of human trafficking. And over the past three years, we've built the program at RBC, which helps survivors either develop or build upon their financial literacy skills. And it really gives them a new start to help to develop autonomy over their finances. And the program has had uh, unbelievable success and it has scaled quite a bit uh, since we first started it. But ultimately, and I, I will caveat this, the best Way to learn about the experiences of a survivor is to speak to a survivor. But what I've learned through some of this work is that the impact when these folks come out of their situation is multifaceted. So they have challenges, including access to safe shelter, access to their own documentation, like their passport or social insurance number. They have difficulties with access to medical care, both either physical or psychological, access to adequate legal representation access to non-cash-based employment opportunities. And the one that this program really focuses on is access to finance and financial assistance. Folks who have experienced trafficking will often have little or no credit history. Oftentimes they have debt that's been incurred on their behalf due to a trafficker, and they have varied levels of financial literacy. And so what we've really done with this program is some of our staff at RBC uses a trauma-based approach, so they are trained. welcome these new clients in and they really use this mentality or approach of meeting them where they're at so discussing finances in a manner that these individuals are comfortable discussing them at with the ultimate goal of helping to establish a banking relationship but just so that they understand their finances they build uh, their savings and ultimately they can find some financial comfort and i'll say you, you mentioned Tamea quite a bit she's been an unbelievable advocate across many, many years, challenging the financial institutions and the regulator to do a lot more in the fight against human trafficking. Uh, And she's been an incredible advisor to the Survivor Inclusion Initiative, both here at RBC and with other uh, financial institutions.
0: That's fantastic. So now that I know everything that you're doing across the board, I hope I can invite you to come back on the show time and time again. I'd be happy
3: to be back anytime.
2: Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.
0: It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.